Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. Alright, welcome back everyone. My name's Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is The Art of War. And today we're going to be continuing on our Sino-Japanese campaign, Sino-Japanese War. Yes. We're going to be doing the second major battle in the Sino-Japanese War. The second major battle of the first Sino-Japanese War. Yes, the first, not the second. Even though there's a lot more information on the second one, but the first one is important. Right. It, it has been interesting reading about it and learning about it, but yeah, so... Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, there's a lot of, you know, wars that existed in the, you know, late 1800s, mid-1800s, that not a lot of people even know about that existed. Because, like, I was also reading about how there was a Japanese-Russian uh, war that oh, went yes. on for several years in the 1900s that I didn't even know existed. And that's kind of kind of crazy. Yeah, happens you, right you after this. Know. And apparently, you yeah. know, that was one of the, like, driving reasons for Japan to try to take over Korea because they... At the time, right, Russia was building their transcontinental Siberian railway, and so they saw Russia as a pretty big threat. So they, the taking yeah. of Korea was almost as a defense against Russia. Yeah, and it's it. I mean, and there was also wars with Western powers against the Chinese. It's just crazy. There's there's a big part, you know, a big big uh, time period of war, and there's a lot of wars that aren't even talked about. Yep. So it's, yeah, it's cool covering it. Right. All right. But yeah, the. So the battle today is the Battle of Pyongyang. Right, so let's recap a little bit from last week. So that was the start of the war, right, with Japan pushing into Korea, the Korean Peninsula and trying to take one of the key port cities that the Chinese had held of Asan, and they were pretty successful in that first land battle. So Japan had secured the entire central and southern region of the Korean Peninsula, and the Chinese forces had to retreat to the northern city of Pyongyang, which they had their more heavy defenses at. Yeah, and the more trained uh, you know, soldiers and also the larger artillery, machine guns, just the, the more fortified position, which is, you know, looking back on it, I was thinking about this when I was reading, it's, it's kind of silly that they didn't dedicate all their forces to like a more central, more southern position to keep the Japanese from coming in, mm -hmm. because they're able to supply vast amounts of troops to Korea since they have such a large standing army. And Japan doesn't have that ability. They have to cross all this huge ocean. They don't have a large standing army either. But they let them get into Korea, secure all these port cities and all these ways to transport troops, and then gave them all this wiggle room to, like, you know, have more time to do it. And then their their strategy is, like, you know, to, to set up a defensive fortification in these different locations and just, like, you know, eventually the Japanese will give up, which, you know, at this point, they're not giving up. They're very, they're very dedicated to their, their objective. Right. Well, I think because well, Pyongyang was obviously a very good city to choose because the Chinese could access it via their boats and their naval power, but also from land, so they could supply troops both ways. But a big reason that they didn't kind of commit all of their resources and put it all into one basket was because uh, Li Hongzheng, who was pretty much the leader of the Chinese military, sort of, but we talked about how it's kind of split up into different groups, but he led the Beiyang army and the Beiyang naval force. 
the main force of that army, the all of the Navy ships were still stationed at China because he was fearing a direct assault on Chinese soil. So he, that's why he was holding some of the forces back because the idea was that if Japan had some success in Korea, they would or they would just push straight to China instead of taking Korea. So it was kind of almost like a contingency plan to to protect the yeah. mainland. And we're looking back on a battle that happened, you know, a hundred years ago, and we're saying like, yeah, maybe they shouldn't have done that. So of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, but true, true. And I do, I do want to give like just a brief history of the city of Pyongyang, right? Um, mm-hmm. So this was. It was a pretty interesting city when I was reading about it. I didn't know this much about it, but during like the 16th century, Christianity was really making um, a strong push into Korea, and Pyongyang was the center of this Christianity explosion in Korea. So at the time right now, it's termed kind of the Jerusalem of the East and has more churches than any other Asian city. So that's I thought that was pretty interesting yeah. off the back. And also... Also interesting, too, that I found out while researching about it is that that is one of the oldest locations of, like, you know, Asian civilization. They had that there's been people that have inhabited the area of Pyongyang for over 4,000 years. There was uh, records of the city first gaining a following, you know, an actual group of individuals came and settled down in the area in 2000 BCE. Right. There's even evidence that prior to that, there was there was, you know, small detachments of humans moving around the area and, you know nomadic or hunter gatherer what have you and so that area is you know that's like kind of you know the the birthplace of the the korean area that's one of the oldest places in all of korea pyongyang unfortunately now it's the capital of north korea so there you know we don't have a lot of information about current day pyongyang because it's in a you know a dictatorship a not a very open country Right. But I mean, looking at just the natural defenses of Pyongyang, it makes sense to see why it's one of the oldest Asian cities that was inhabited because it's first off situated on a river. It's situated on the um, Yulu River. So it has, you know, the access to the ocean and the all the resources that resides. And then north of it, it has all of these hills that provide just natural defenses. And from so pretty much the only open area is the fields to the south and southwest and there's pretty much no cover or protection there so it would be a, definitely a good site to defend from yeah and also pyongyang is the capital of north korea now and yeah. it's the most populated city in all of north korea just you know setting that little scene what what it looks like now and what it was in the past yeah. but yeah that's that's the the site of the coming battle that we're going to be covering oh right i'm here. sorry disclaimer yeah, little aside that I'll put in. It's Pyongyang is situated on the Taidong River. So, yeah, I guess I'll start by covering the Chinese strategy here. So, it it makes a lot of sense because the Chinese army has such, you know, much more resources from mainland China and a lot more economic power and manpower. The general idea is that if they draw out this war and this battle long enough, Japan will have to retreat because Japan doesn't have the resources and economic power to keep up a lengthy campaign, especially as we approach the wintertime. So right now we're in the summer, but this battle takes place in September. So the Chinese idea is generally, you know, just to fortify this big city with all of their resources and manpower 
and just hold off the Japanese for as long as possible. And then the Japanese will eventually have to retreat. So we have about 13 to 15,000 Chinese troops that are garrisoned in Pyongyang. And these are commanded by General Ye Zixiao, who suffered the defeat at Asan and retreated to Pyongyang. And another general who's Zuo Baogue, who's um, a Qing Muslim general. So he has kind of a separate garrison of troops that he's leading that are all the Chinese Muslims. And when Yi Zixiao first gets to Pyongyang, his first plan is to overhaul the city's walls because the walls are, you know, pretty old stone fortifications. So he's really trying to modernize the reinforcements they have. And so they make a lot of earthworks and dig a ton of trenches just to prepare for the oncoming Japanese siege. Yeah. And also, uh, I think kind of was was interesting but also was a, a key mistake that the Chinese made in their their fortifications was uh, they focused the majority of all of their uh, fortifications on the southern wall where they expect the Japanese attack to be you know the where the main Japanese attack will come from and they don't really pay much attention to their flank because on their flank like Clay said there's a large amount of hills and over time there has been large constructions of forts and castles on top of these hills which these hills in themselves make it difficult for large-scale attacks artillery what have you right but also the the fortifications that are built on top of them make it almost impossible for them to actually take these hills because they're located at a very large i think it's like 100 200 feet above the actual city so they're they're kind of you know they're very well defended from the city and also from the forts so they don't really pay much attention to their flank they say, okay, we're going to focus on the area we think is the weakest, which is the southern walls, and we're just going to, you know, assume that our, you know, they have troops in these forts on our, our northern section mm -hmm. on the hills. They're going to be able to be fine, and the Japanese wouldn't even go for that. That'd be silly, right? But, like we see in Asan, the Japanese have a, a method of flanking. They like to... When they're taking a fortified position, they like to encircle and then usually do a flanking maneuver to either force the Chinese to surrender or to siege them out to the point where they have no choice and they just have to eventually give up, right? Right. So kind of, kind of, you know, once again, hindsight 2020, they don't really put much resources into their, their flank, but the Japanese, their original plan when they're moving to... Uh, Pyongyang is actually to do a frontal attack and when they got close enough to the walls would maybe secure their position they would start encircling the city their original plan wasn't to immediately flank right so mm -hmm. the Chinese were right in regards to fortify the front but in the end it's you know it, it doesn't turn out in their favor and another thing is that the Japanese leaders military leaders have been kind of planning this siege since june almost right when they first captured Asan, they knew pyongyang was going to be in their nest target and so they have yeah. spent a, quite a bit of time drawing up different plans and this is one of the key differences that i've noticed between the chinese and the japanese military approaches is that the japanese their planning is so detailed they have plans for pretty much every scenario they even have contingency plans for if they had a terrible defeat and had to defend their mainland of the island of japan so they had so many different scenarios that they were trying to set up meanwhile china's pretty much just banking on the fact that if they draw this war out long enough 
Japan will run out of resources and have to retreat. Which is reasonable, because like we said in the, in the first podcast, every single time Japan has launched an attack on China, they've basically just been worn out, run out of resources, and then logistically they can't afford it anymore, right. and they retreat back home. So for the Chinese, it makes sense what they're doing, and for the Japanese, they pro- they, they're probably taking all these new steps, because they're like, well, we haven't been working, it hasn't been working in the past, we've got to take a new, a new approach to it. And yeah, they had kind of like a blitzkrieg-like uh, movement in in Korea, where they're moving very fast after each battle. They're not they're not settling down, you know, gathering more reinforcements, getting you know some information from mainland Japan. They're going straight in, and like right after the battle of, of uh, uh, Xiangwan, when they they take us on, they're t- they they keep moving north and and uh towards central korea and taking all these little you know cities and these small towns mm-hmm. they're not just like idling at us on so yeah they they their strategy is is a lot more different than it was in the past and i guess let's we can get into the to the actual battle now that we've gone over all the the context and yeah well i guess there's one more thing i want to touch on because the only military force uh, that Japan has in Korea right now is the the you know small army of four thousand that's led by the major general um what was his name Oshim Oshima yeah who 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 took Asan and so that's the only land force they have and he's pushing up towards Pyongyang but in the meantime mainland Japan is sending like three different troops uh or three different what is it uh. So at the time, Japan is sending three separate fleets with military brigades to reinforce the land forces on Korea. And they're sending these fleets from different areas. So one fleet is landing at, you know, the western side of the peninsula where China's naval forces are are kind of milling around. And the other one is landing on the eastern side of the peninsula where it's a lot more protected. But they're trying to get – they have to get these troops – to Korea pretty much as fast as they can because as Sam said their land forces are really doing this blitzkrieg style where they're pushing up very fast so they're really trying to get reinforcements fast yeah and also you know interesting we're going to talk about this as well but uh the Chinese were aware of this happening and there was actually a fleet under their naval general named Admiral Ding who was responsible for stopping that from occurring but he's unfortunately not able to stop the you know, four to five thousand Japanese troops from making landfall and they actually get to join in the Battle of Pyongyang uncontested and the fleet gets to go back to Japan pick up more troops and then you know he doesn't really accomplish his purpose but the naval battle ensues a little bit after that whenever they kind of run into each other but he doesn't he, he doesn't really affect the battle himself uh, Admiral Ding. so yeah so I guess uh, on, on the 15th of September Oh, no, the 14th of September, Mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese arrive uh, at Pyongyang and they set up a little, you know, a little uh, fortification uh, pretty far from the walls because also, uh, we didn't include it, but it's interesting to point out that the Chinese had also leveled a large portion of the fields in front of the walls the southern walls they had cleared a bunch of the trees to make it as difficult as possible for the japanese to get close to the walls and potentially use artillery against their walls right so they are pretty far away when they they set up camp and they wait till the next morning the 15th which 
is unfortunately not very good for them. It's rainy, it's foggy, it's just overall not what you want whenever you're planning a, a siege or an attack on a fortified position. Mm -hmm. And uh, they go with it anyway. They, they plan on the attack anyway in the mud and the slog and go after go after the walls. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, it was pretty bad conditions, but I think at this point they had already kind of decided on this four-pronged strategy of attack. So the leader of the Japanese army at this time is Yamagata Arimoto, who pretty much is the head, he's the father of Japanese militarism. So he basically was the sole person responsible for the modern, modern for, ugh, was the sole person responsible for the modernization of the <laughs> Japanese military into what it was. And his, the, the, so he's like the highest ranking Japanese military official that's kind of overseeing this battle. Uh, but below him, the pretty much the second in command is Nozu Michitsura, who's also a very high-ranking Japanese military leader. And so both of these military leaders tra like traveled abroad and studied in Europe and America, so they have a bunch of very good experience and knowledge. And so Nozu Michitsura, when he first arrives here to Pyongyang and kind of assesses the battlefield, he develops this plan where he's going to lead his main division brigade directly you know into what the chinese want on that southwestern open field and it's almost going to be kind of like a distraction and at the same time the combined brigade which is led by our friend major general oshima yoshimasa is going to push the forts on the um the western side of pyongyang that are around the the taidong river and so these two main forces are pretty much the frontal assault on Pyongyang that's really taking all of the attention from the Chinese forces. And both of these forces actually get repelled. So it, I was reading that apparently in the early reporting of this battle, it was said that the Chinese had won because they're repelling these two main forces. But what happens? Yeah. Yeah, so the first attack goes through, and one of the biggest uh, reasons that the Japanese attack fails is that the artillery that they have chosen to use for the siege is very short range. It's not something that can go as far as a cannon on a wall can go, right? So to use this artillery, they have to get within range. But like we said, the strategy was to use a frontal assault on these large open fields. And whenever the Chinese are looking at this field, they are looking at it down the sights of machine guns, of artillery, of mortars. They have multiple ways of reaching the Japanese, and the Japanese have no way of reaching the Chinese. So mm -hmm. that first attack fails because they can't get in within range. They can't really molest the, the troops on the wall, and they're just kind of stuck not being able to even, you know, make an attack on the wall. So... They have to reevaluate what happens. They launch another attack on the river forts to the to the east. They take a few of those, but once again, they can't hold them because of the same problem. They don't have the artillery to combat the artillery that's launching on them. And so they choose to send a unit, a division, to attack the northern hill fortifications, whatever you're talking about, the ones that are located way above Pyongyang and are were kind of deemed by the Chinese as untakeable. They were their their main defense on their flank, right? And one of these fortifications was called Maktante, and it was the largest of the group. And it was the, the chief responsible for being able to hold their flank. 
And from the accounts I read, uh, the force that takes Moktang Tay does not get much resistance at all. Mm -hmm. They don't lose many troops. They engage in like a two-hour battle, which is more of kind of like just forcing the, the Chinese out, not really like shooting at each other, just kind of like surrounding it and letting them know that they're kind of stuck. And the Japanese are able to take Moktang Tay. And this looks really bad for the Chinese because not only have they taken the flank, they've also taken one of the best artillery positions in the entire area. Because like we said, they had short artillery. Now they're 100 feet, 200 feet above Pyongyang. Right. Being able to look down into the city on the walls and the fortifications, and they're able to just bombard the Chinese from the flank. Right. right? They can just uh, position their artillery, and it just shoots over the fortifications of Pyongyang directly into the city. Yeah, so it's like they, that's that's why I was saying it's like a big mistake that they don't they don't really pay attention to their flank. They play more attention to their their front, and that's that's what happens. They lose the flank with little contest, but the Chinese forces are still putting up a pretty big fight on the the the, the southern frontal assault front, of the yeah. Japanese. Yeah, because they're also the, the the strategy also entailed using another attack on the front, a second one to distract once again, so they could take Mok Dante. Mm-hmm. Right, so as the Japanese take Moktangte and they begin bombarding the city, General Yi Zixiao of the Chinese forces pretty much recognizes that this is an impossible battle to win now, and he chooses to surrender, but the Qing Muslim general that we talked about, Zhuo um, Bao Guei, is, it's not in his belief really to surrender he he is expecting to go down fighting and so are all of his Qing muslim forces that he's commanding so they're still fighting when all of this bombardment is going on and he actually succumbs to the bombardment he dies from one of the artillery blasts and once that force basically falls the rest of the chinese forces surrender and the japanese are able to push into the southern fortifications and begin taking the city yeah and it's also funny there's an account that says that because the the japanese forces were so split from each other there's one on the flank and one in, in the front when the flank was able to secure a surrender from the uh, the chinese the japanese were unaware that were in the right. front that the that they had surrendered so they continued to bombard the walls and move up going through their, their you know their military fashion of trying to take more and more ground because they expected to be you know attacked mm -hmm. and they they only realized that the chinese had surrendered when they made it to the front gate gate of pyongyang and it was just sitting wide open yeah <laughs> so they, they they had no idea until they actually got the wall so the whole entire time they were like attacking the walls and moving up moving up moving up and meanwhile the japanese are going to the city you know securing securing it from the flank oh and also also you know going back to what you're talking about uh, while this was all transpiring, on pretty much the same day, a few hours later, just like the Battle of Xiongwan, there's a naval battle occurring very close, close by. And like I said, Admiral Ding, who is the responsible for the Chinese Navy, he has a fleet of about 10 warships, and he was tasked with stopping the Japanese reinforcement fleet. He doesn't do that, but he's still trying to, you know, scout the coast and maybe find, you know, a separated ship or two or maybe harass some encampments and he gets news from uh, a, a Chinese scout that tells him that the Battle of Pyongyang is over, went in Japanese's favor, the Japan's favor and 
there's no reason to really be here anymore. So he's now given the responsibility of uh, making sure about five to 10,000 troops from China get to the Yalu River, which is a f about 20, 30 miles back from Pyongyang and is the border between uh, Korea and Manchuria. And there, that's the new position that China is going to take. Right. They're now going to take this defensive position on the Yalu, Yalu River. And he's given the responsibility of making sure that the troops that have maybe escaped from uh, Pyongyang and also the troops that uh, were waiting to move to Pyongyang get to the Yalu River. So he actually managed to get to all of them there pretty much. Uh, but when he's doing it, the Japanese fleet arrives and finds this, you know, 10, 10 to 11 ships that uh, Ding has. And like we've said before, the... The Chinese were, you know, they had resources, but they hadn't gone through this military industrialization period that Japan did. So Japan's fleet was about 10 to 20 heavily armored, heavily armed ships, whilst the Chinese fleet, the, the Beiyang fleet, was eight wooden galleys with artillery on them and two heavily fortified, heavily armored and armed uh, warships. And so the battle, of course, doesn't really go in China's favor. And the two ships, Dinghuan and Xinguan, which are like the, the biggest names for the Chinese Navy, they they survive, but the rest of the fleet gets sunk and they retreat on their heels away from uh, the Yulong River and away from Pyongyang. And that basically secures Japanese's, or the, <laughs> I keep saying Japanese, <laughs> Japan's uh, naval superiority and also land superiority so now they basically have all of korea right yeah so this this naval battle actually takes place two days after the capture of pyongyang mm -hmm. and the dingwang and the chinwan the giant chinese ships are able to survive because they're pretty much outclass and they're bigger than all of the japanese ships so the the japanese yeah. firepower can't penetrate them um but it was a pretty pretty big um, defeat that Admiral Ding suffered by losing all of these ships of the Chinese fleet and it means they can't really secure the northern bank of the Yalu River which is very important to China's um, military offensive into Korea and it didn't really have a place for their troops to retreat from or kind of organize at yeah and so it's it you know in in what, it started around June to now September, and Japan has taken the entirety of Korea. And that's like, wow, you know, that it's never happened before. And that, like I was also reading, uh, Pyongyang had been in the hands of, you know, China multiple times. It had been in the hands of Korea multiple times. It had been in the hands of other Asian Asian countries, but it had never been in the hands of Japan. This was the first time that Japan had ever taken Pyongyang. And that, that kind of echoes how far they've really gone in this this campaign in comparison to their previous attempts and they do it in such a short period of time it's pretty pretty impressive and, and china's kind of scared you know they're they're moving their troops back to the Yalu river they don't they're they're expecting now a, a push into china into manchuria right i do want to just say like going back to pyongyang after it was captured accounts do say that general yi Shaxiao and a lot of chinese forces attempted to flee the city because it's apparently one of the conditions that he promised in his surrender was that the forces would stay within the city. But when night fell, um, the Chinese forces attempted to flee to this northern 
bank of the Yalu River, and they suffered a lot of heavy casualties from Japanese artillery. And I think the death toll is for the Chinese forces, like 2,000 or something like that. But the Japanese forces, the land forces at Pyongyang only suffered less than 100 casualties, which is yeah, pretty wild. And, the, and those casualties came from just the frontal assault. Like nothing else really caused any damage to the Japanese forces except for their, you know, distraction tactics, which, it, you know, expected those results. They expected some losses because it was a distraction force, right? Right. So, yeah, overall, it's, you know, just like Xiongwan, it, it's bad for the Chinese, pretty good for the Japanese. They, and, and that's also really important that they're losing very small numbers. Mm-hmm. Not as important now that they've taken Pyongyang, but in the previous battles, it's super important that Japan does not take heavy losses because, like we said, it's logistically so difficult to move the troops from Japan to Korea, right? So if you're losing a bunch of troops, you have to keep restocking those troops, and it just makes issues for Japan. But they're not losing that many troops, so those same forces keep, you know, getting to move forward and forward and right. have the same same strength. And it is interesting to note that Yi Zhishao, the Chinese general, who had suffered two major defeats, actually survives all the way to make it back to China, where he's actually sentenced to death for his humiliating defeats, but he's able to kind of avoid execution by having um, influential friends, I think. So, but yeah, so suffered two pretty big defeats. Yeah, so it kind of shows that China's not too happy. You know, they're pretty angry about this whole situation if they're willing to execute one of their lead generals. Yeah, and another big change is that the command of the Imperial Japanese Army after this battle is passed to Noju Michitsura from Yamagata Ariboto. So we get this kind of passing of the torch onto a new Japanese general that's going to lead the army in the coming battles. Yeah, and it was because of sickness or, or something to do with the, the health. Yeah, well, he was he was it's... aging at this point. He was pretty old. Um, but yeah. but obviously Nozu Michisura had shown that he was a very capable leader, leader mm-hmm. especially in this battle of Pyongyang, where he was very successful with his tactics. So it wasn't it wasn't because they weren't, weren't thinking he was doing too good or, or what yeah. whatever. <laughs> they just he just couldn't do it anymore. He's too old. Yeah, I think yeah he he's a very interesting historical figure. Um, Arimoto is because just reading a little bit about him, he. It's very interesting in basically single-handedly designing the Japanese military. Yeah, I mean, the entire Meiji Revolution that happens in, in Japan is just crazy. Like, it, it's, it's one of those things where there's just so many great minds that all came together and created this powerhouse of a country when it previously was really nothing to even, you know, look at. It was something that was just, uh, it's just Japan over there. But now they're they're actually a rival to the rest of the First World countries and in, in, mm-hmm. in supremacy so it's yeah it's pretty they're all pretty impressive yeah. the whole the whole meiji meiji uh dynasty i guess if you could call it that pretty and impressive. it's pretty cool looking at their heritage because a lot of the military leaders came from samurai families mm-hmm. yeah and they were they were uh dai- daimyos and like they they transitioned from a very internally hostile japan where they're all warring over each other to all being united centralized creating these incredible military advancements and industrial advancements in 50 to 60 years. And then they go and take Korea in a few months. So yeah. yeah. And I think this is pretty much 
probably Japan's strongest characteristic is because it has so many great leaders that in a battle such as Pyongyang, where they have basically four different forces that are very split up, they're each led by very capable leaders, so they're able to stay on task and able to perform very well. Meanwhile, the Chinese army is led by multiple different leaders as well, but they have, you know, language barriers or they have ideological barriers. They're not as unified as the Japanese are, so they're not as effective as a fighting force. Yep. I mean, that's that's the truth in it, that, loy- uh, you know, being loyal and, and have national pride for your country and, and, like, determination for the objectives set forward for you and your people is so important in war. And Japan... You know, ever since the Meiji Revolution, even to this day, and you see it in World War One, World War Two, they're extremely loyal to their country, mm-hmm. and yeah, that plays a big part in this war. All right, well, I guess I guess that's we we about covered the the battle, and I get in the aftermath is you know they they take Korea, they have complete control of 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 Korea and the the naval areas, the coastal areas around Korea. And they're now looking towards Manchuria. The Chinese are right. They they have their eyes set on actual central China. Yep. They want to take their biggest rival's country. And this was actually pretty much the plan from the beginning. Because as I said, China, or Japan had pretty much made up so many different plans and had a different strategy for each phase of the war as they saw it. So they didn't see it as just taking Korea. General Yamagata Arimoto his first phase of the war was to take Korea as quickly as possible and then push into Manchurian. Yeah, and, and you know, when we were talking in the, in the first podcast on, on Xiongwan, uh, this was always a battle between China and, and Japan. This was right. never a battle between China, Japan and, and Korea. They didn't really care about, you know, conflict with Korea. They just cared about taking the land that would give them the advantage to be able to move into China and take China. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And, That's you know, honestly, reading about the Korean citizens at this time, they were actually not too favorable to Japan. Um, it had been, you know, kind of the Korean ideology to be very isolationist. Isolationist? How do you use Isolationist. Yeah. So it had been the Korean ideal to be very isolationist. And the citizens did not take too kindly to Japan kind of coming in and basically imposing their own government and kind of pushing the king aside. Yeah, because China, China has already kind of done that to Korea and Korea kind of like they kind of stomach China because China, you know, is just so much larger than Korea in, in, in the past you know, thousand years prior to this battle, they've slowly kind of worked their way into Korea and and influenced them by culture and by by politics, diplomacy, whatever. And they're not happy with China, but now they're even you know more upset with Japan because now this foreign force is coming in that they're already having to deal with China, and they're now having Japan come in and try to take their country. They're kind of like like I like to I like to kind of equate them to France. You know, they're they're mm. a territory that's not happy with with invasions and all these foreign powers in there, but it always seems to happen. France always seems to be the battleground, right? Yeah. Same thing with Korea between Japan and China. It's always Korea that's the battleground. Oh, it is caught in the middle. And it's funny because right kind of at the same time, the king of Korea reached an agreement with Japan. It, it definitely sounds like Japan basically wrote up this um, treaty and just made them sign it. But it basically yeah. gave Japan... 
it, it basically stated that Korea was friends with Japan and they were renouncing all ties to China and that Japan could stay in Korea with their military force as long as it took to push out China. So, yeah. And also, we I, we kind of have to throw this in here because like, if we went back like 500 years prior to this battle, uh, it wouldn't have been like, oh, you guys are friends to Japan now and you have to expel the Chinese. It would be like, we own you now. Right. You're now part of, but this is in the imperial period, like, you know, imperialization and, and uh, colonization of, of foreign countries. And you don't really take the approach of like, you're now japan right you go about it trying to like frame it so that the rest of the world looks at it like it's like a diplomatic opera uh, you know uh, operation not like a full hostile yeah. takeover so like you're still so your own country in, in, but we're yeah, gonna kind of dictate yeah. whatever happens yeah you guys we're gonna we're gonna puppet master you that's basically what it is but we're gonna make it seem like it's not as bad as it is and so yeah that, that's why it's not like we're just we just own you now it's more more friendly but it's really not yeah but, but yeah, I guess now we have to give our, our, our uh, Flaming Pig rating. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So each week we give a rating on a scale of, I guess, bad to Flaming Pig. <laughs> flaming <laughs> yes. Pig is the best strategy that's ever the, been done. The cusp. Yep. Yes. Yep. And uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, it's going to be the flanking maneuver of uh, Makente. Makente? Yeah. Yeah. Makente. Makente. Yeah. I- I would say, you know, it's kind of hard because it, it's not it's not about, like, Japan's uh, ingenuity and in taking it. It's more of, like, China just didn't realize that it was an issue, right? It's kind of a mistake by China, not really a success of Japan. But I don't know because like, Japan definitely took advantage of it. Well, they took advantage of it, yeah. But, I mean, it's not like they, you know, in, in you know, created some ingenuitive strategy to get over the walls and take the fortification over overwhelming odds it's just like hey they didn't really defend this very well let's take it so we can you know use our artillery on pyongyang well i think i'm i would give it okay let's see what you're gonna give it i just i just give a wild pig you know it's not on fire it's not a military pig. pig it's just it's just a wild pig roaming around dude it's not a dead pig it's just a live pig hmm i'll give this like <laughs> I don't know some, like I don't know, some nice like a nice fat pig, you know, healthy. Oh yeah, but is he on fire? No, no, no. Okay, so it's still not that. Good. We we he have not given out a flaming pig yet. But... Uh, you can't give out the top, you know, unless something crazy happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I just love I just love our ratings because it's just random nonsense. It really is with a random pig. <laughs> There's no gauge of if it's a good pig or a bad pig. We just give it. At a first, pig. it started as food, but now it's just pigs. Yes. <laughs> No, it's pig. Started as pork well, came, food. Food is good, right? Ah, I mean, that's close to flaming yeah. pig. What are you gonna do with the pig after he's on fire? You're gonna eat well, the pig. Sure, right? it's post-flamed pig. You think they ate those pigs? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> you don't think they ate those pigs? Like, come on, what are you gonna do? Is just you gonna pick up the corpse and go throw it away? I think it was a little too I charred. Uh, maybe I don't know how long they burned. But yeah, I guess that's it. That's that's the yep, podcast. Yep. So now we're gonna catch us next week as we cover Japan's push into Manchuria. Yep, I'm going to be a good one. Yep, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks. Catch you next week. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host, Eliza, talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully, we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that.